I'm Taylor. And welcome to the third episode of Square Mile of Murder. Today, we've got a case of vigilante justice, a big moral question, and our unqualified thoughts on head injuries. On July 10th, 1981, in the ass end of nowhere, Missouri, Ken McElroy was shot dead in the middle of the street, in broad daylight, in front of as many as 60 witnesses. Yet his murder remains unsolved to this day. So let's jump in. Ken Rex McElroy was born on June 1st, 1934 in Overland Park, Kansas, the 15th of 16 children. Just let that sink in for a moment. I have thoughts, but I mean, after at least it being easy labor, they'll just be sliding out. No, they just point. they walk out. <laughs> they just walk out fully formed. It's like, oh, 15. I mean, they are farmers and it's back in the 30s. So you had big families because it was free farm labor. But but holy hell. 16. And how like how does it feel to be the, you know, second to last of that bunch as well because at that point like you're living with an entire like baseball team (laughs) and it's do you even have you even met your parents are you just raised by your siblings or like possibly a combination yeah you meet your parents and they're like right this one's gonna be raised by this one yeah yeah like have a buddy system you get jimmy (laughs) (laughs) um Right, so he uh, he is the 15th of 16 children born to poor tenant farmers, Tony and Mabel. Uh, the family moved around Kansas and the Ozarks. They moved around the Ozarks, and eventually they settled on the outskirts of Skidmore, Missouri in the 1940s. And Skidmore, which I think is an amazing name. <laughs> Skidmore is a small town in Nodaway County, in the northeast of Missouri. Uh, it's fairly close to the borders with Iowa and Nebraska. And it's kind of about 80 miles north of Kansas City, which is in Missouri. And if you didn't know that Kansas City is actually in Missouri, not Kansas, don't worry. The president of the United States didn't know that either, as was proven at this year's Super Bowl. Well, but that's the thing. There are two. Yeah. I think it's not very good planning to have a state line cut through the middle of a city, really. No. It's, like, not the best idea, but, but yeah. I still think the president of the, president of the United States should know that if they're congratulating a team. Especially after a historic win for the first time in 90 years. Not that I know literally anything about football <laughs> and didn't even realize the Super Bowl was happening the other day until after the fact. Really? I mean... My timeline was full of Super Bowl stuff on, like, Facebook and Instagram, and I'm the Brit. (laughs) Well, I, the only, honestly, the only reason I realized it was even happening was because all the commercials started showing up in my feed. That was like, oh, it's the Super Bowl, of course. According to the 1980 census, Skidmore had a population of 437 people, and as of 2016, the estimated population was just 269 people. There's more people live on my street than that, I think. Yeah. Uh, I've lived in buildings with more people than that in my life. It's really, 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 really fucking small. Yeah. Um, according to the 2010 census, 
3% of that population was white, 0.4% was Native American, and 0.4% was mixed race, which is really white, in other words. Yeah. Which... Overwhelmingly white. You know, Missouri. Um, I just did a weird, like, shoulder movement, but you can't see that because... This is a podcast, so I apologize. I will try to stop doing that sort of thing. Yeah, I'm just rolling my eyes now. <laughs> Skidmore is surrounded by crop fields and farms, which seems to be the main industry in the area. It's a, you know, real, proper, rural, small-town America. Yeah, and we don't want to start a riot, but it kind of looks like your typical Midwestern rural small town. If we can class Missouri as Midwestern, which we had fun in games researching this, because apparently it's too far north to be south, it's too far south to be north, it's too far east to be west, and too far west to be east. So it just is. (laughs) Yeah, it's just its own special thing. But when you look at the area like on Google Maps, because I had a nice walk around town on Google Maps (laughs) from the comfort of my flat, (laughs) uh, you can see it's just all farm buildings and vehicles and like silos and and of course it's got a water tower why does the water tower get in of course i'm so happy i never told you the water tower sorry oh no (laughs) right so when like when you watch tv shows and documentaries and everything about america every small town seems to have a water tower and, you know, I'd never been to the States until last year, and I was visiting a friend of ours who lives in buttfuck nowhere, Idaho. <laughs> hey, Kaylee, because we're going to bully you into watching this and to listening to this, so you know. Hi. Hi. Um, and so I said to her, I was like, are water towers really a thing, or is it just like a TV land thing? And she's like, well, in the Midwest it is, because it's the Midwest, but not so much in Idaho. So she then found places in Idaho that had water towers and <laughs> took me to see them. Oh my god. <laughs> so I saw one in Winchester State Park. Saw one in Moscow, Idaho, which is done out in the college uh, team colors. Oh, And yeah. we saw two in Walla Walla, Washington. Nice. Yeah. But a couple of years ago, me and Kaylee went to London and she took like shit tons of pictures of double-decker buses and bendy buses and stuff because... Her nieces and nephews had never seen things like that living in rural Idaho. So I just say that water tower is like my equivalent of that. Yeah, that's fair. I I can see that. See, now I'm trying to think like, I don't, we didn't have a water tower in the town I grew up in, but I grew up in the Northeast. So Mm. we're also surrounded by fucking water and rivers and shit And the Atlantic Ocean. Yeah, that. I mean, I was on the... That little thing. A little bit inland for most of my time, but, like, the Connecticut River is pretty pretty watery most of the time. Well, rivers do tend to be. Uh, yeah. Uh, so, yeah. So, in this small, rural American town with its water tower, um, it also, as a feature, had a bully. A big bully named our dear friend, Ken McElroy. McElroy dropped out of school in the eighth grade at the age of 15. Um, is that the usual age, being in the eighth grade? Because I thought... That's older. 
Yeah. Uh, so would that mean he'd been held back a few years at that point? Or? Maybe. Or maybe uh, with farming families, he could have just started school later. Okay. Um, or he could have been out of school during harvest seasons. And so like not during the regular school periods. Right. Okay. Or he could have been held back. Um, but yeah, eighth grade is like 13 to 14. That's the general. So it's like right, a year. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Cause I always get confused and I'm like, I'm just going to ask someone who actually knows. Yes. I, I was an eighth grader once. Were you really? Yes. <laughs> and it's believed that even at the age of 15, he was still mostly illiterate, but he was well known without throughout the town as a bully both of children and adults and virtually everyone was scared of him even at the age of 15 even including law enforcement that's not a good sign that just sets the tone (laughs) yeah that's not great um after his death a local farmer described him as wanting to be quote big and important and have people afraid of him when he walked down the street and he got that they were uh, author Harry McLean wrote a book on the life and death of Ken McElroy, and he described McElroy as always having a chip on his shoulder. His family wasn't part of the successful farming community of Northwest Missouri. They were poor. They'd come from Kansas. He kind of grew up resenting those he considered to be more successful. The kids of the farmers who were doing well at school, he was bullying them by fourth or fifth grade. So just for our non-american listeners fourth fifth grade what age is that um fourth grade would be nine to ten fifth grade is ten to eleven right okay yeah so he started young yeah that's very young uh reportedly stealing other people's lunch money and shoplifting from local shops all without consequence and i think that's a big thing to remember is Mm. Even as a kid, there was no consequences for this. Yeah, that's that's not good. Nah. After dropping out of school, McElroy quickly gained a reputation in the local area as a raccoon hunter, a small-time thief, and a womanizer. I have some questions about raccoon hunting and about the womanizing thing, but raccoon hunting, I mean, obviously we know what raccoons are, but why? Because that's in everything you read about him is like mentioned as a raccoon hunter so why <laughs> yeah uh, all this stuff oddly enough that i saw about him also mentioned raccoon hunting and I'm, I, I don't know this is not like for uh, for all of you uh, you know non-american listeners please don't think that raccoon hunting is a traditional american sport like it's not we do not go out and search for trash pandas every day of the week they're so adorable they're adorable they're fucking menaces this would be a good time to tell you the story about how my mother two summers ago captured a baby raccoon (laughs) by accident all good stories start with that please continue well so at our house in vermont we have a family of woodchucks and my mother decided that, quote, if she didn't get rid of them, 
They would destroy the foundation of the house. Now, just as a sidebar, the foundation of the house is like four foot thick concrete slab. So I don't know what kind of damage she thought they could really do. But anyway, but so yeah, so she decided they needed to try to trap the woodchuck. And so put out a trap with like different stuff in it, you know, like lettuce and like apples and all kinds of different shit. The door was left like locked open so they could go get the food and leave. Right. As in like, so they're learning this is a place to get food. Mm-hmm. So just a free, it's just like a free counter. It's a buffet. Yeah. Yeah. And so like that went on for a couple of weeks. And so then the time had come to trap those suckers for good. Right. So they armed the trap and at 3 a.m. one morning, my mother apparently hears this like loud banging going on <laughs> outside. Right. And we get really strong winds because we're at the top of like a-, a hill. And so, and we're surrounded by forest. And so she thought, oh, it's just like the trees in the wind. She even got up, you know, got a drink of water, went to the bathroom and went back to bed. When she woke up in the morning, she looked outside expecting, you know, nothing in particular and found a baby raccoon frantically, (laughs) like, clutching at the bars in this fucking woodchuck trap. And I actually think I have a video of it somewhere, which uh, I can put on social media. Please do, because this sounds amazing. And like, first of all, this raccoon was adorable, but like super fucking freaked out that it had been captured. Then they had to try to get the raccoon out of the trap (laughs) without the raccoon attacking them with its sharp little adorable hands. And yeah, it was a whole thing. Now, the funny, th- funniest thing about this was it was all happening outside my bedroom window and I slept through the entire situation. <laughs> how, how did you sleep through the whole thing? I don't know. They were particularly quiet about, you know, <laughs> dealing with this captive raccoon. I woke up and then all of a sudden there was this video of a raccoon on my mother's Facebook page. And I was like... What happened while I was asleep? <laughs> um, but so, yeah, then she decided, you know what? The woodchucks could have a part in and the trap got put away. So all in all, it worked out well for everyone. Just a slightly traumatized raccoon. Yeah. Maybe he scampered away into the woods and he was fine. And some, I assume, very greedy woodchucks at this point. Cause they're at the oh, buffet. yeah. They're, they're, they're a permanent fixture no they are part so, of the family so really all she did was domesticate yeah she did of moving she them fucking away did. now <laughs> now we have like a, a rock wall outside one of the windows and they just like sun themselves on the rocks oh they're adorable yeah now it's as much their property as it is ours anyway raccoon sidebar over i don't know why it's such a big deal that he's a fucking raccoon hunter I think that's weird. So, nobody knows why. No. Why that's on his CV. No. 
So I've forgotten what my questions were about womanizing now. Well, that's what baby raccoons will do to you. Yeah, make you forget everything. <laughs> um, at the age of 18, McElroy married his first wife, who was just 16 years old. Ew. So, creepy. So it's not so much womanizing as like childinizing. Yeah. I think that, that that's a very simple way of saying what I was probably thinking about. Yeah. Yeah. These are... It's very predatory. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So in Missouri, the age of consent is 17, but it's legal to have sex with someone under 17 as long as both parties are at least 14 years old and under 21. So if one of them is over 21 and the other is under 17, it becomes statutory rape. That's just so... It's just fucked up. Why, why not just have a single age of consent so with his young wife in tow 18 year old McElroy briefly leaves Skidmore uh, when a relative gets him a job on a construction site in Denver Colorado but this doesn't last very long because while he's working at this construction site McElroy is hit in the head with steel beams and suffers severe head trauma uh like splitting his skull open head trauma and and that's painful i've, I've been through that it, it yeah. hurts like <laughs> not recommended mm-hmm. zero out of ten no. would not recommend um like, like minus five <laughs> <laughs> uh and then from then on he suffers from chronic pain now some have attributed his violent behavior to this you know severe knock on the noggin fuck no (laughs) right i'm sorry but you can't justify or even like explain away someone's whole life of crime and abuse and everything else this man does because he had a bad bump on the head yeah no. i mean it's a really bad bump really bad bump on the head but it's i i don't believe that you can go from being a perfectly nice person to suddenly a horrendous predatory criminal because you had a bang on the head. You have to be predisposed to this kind of behavior, which we know he was. Yeah. Because he was going around bullying children and adults alike. All from law you know, enforcement even. Yeah, from the age of like nine, ten years old. So, I don't know... There's obviously a lot recently about head injuries and concussion because of, like, the Aaron Hernandez stuff. Yeah, the CCE. Yeah. It doesn't just change someone's personality. This wasn't actually the first head injury that McElroy had apparently suffered. Um, When he was a child, he fell off of a hay wagon on his family's farm and sustained a serious head injury. But we're not sure exactly what age this happened at. Yeah, it kind of seems to be like a footnote in a lot of stuff that's written about him, so yeah, who knows when it happens. But, like I said, he was already known to be bullying kids by the time he was in the fourth grade, so depending on when this accident happens, like I said, we're not entirely sure, he was probably already a bully, he's already showing these really antisocial tendencies, and I just don't buy it. Partly because when I was six, I smashed my forehead up, tripping over on an uneven paving stone, had to go to hospital, and I still have a scar on my forehead. (laughs) 
so and i haven't gone around killing people recently you know you haven't no what have you been doing with your life (laughs) so following his head trauma at the age of 18 mcelroy could no longer work on the construction site in colorado and uh, after struggling to find more work in denver he and his wife returned to skidmore missouri um but the couple did not have a long and happy marriage and live happily ever after yeah because that would make a very short episode if it did and a very boring one really i mean for a true crime podcast sure yeah so once they had returned to skidmore and moved back in to the McElroy family farmhouse, uh, McElroy struggled to find work uh, due to his illiteracy and his head injury, and so he took to a life of crime. McElroy started cattle wrestling, stealing unmarked cattle from local farms and selling them at cattle auctions or markets under various fake names or the names of his girlfriends so that it would never be traced back to him. Now, cattle rustling just doesn't sound like a serious crime, does it? It sounds no. kind of comical, It sounds but like it's a big deal. It sounds like, I don't know, like um, something kind of pleasant. Like, <laughs> like I, uh, for some reason, my brain is associating rustling with ruffling, and so I'm just imagining someone going around like, a field full of cows and just sort of like you know fluffing up their their fur and like just petting the cows yeah just sort of like you okay there bessie having a good day <laughs> but no it, it's it's more of uh, uh, nefarious than that yeah turns out so i actually googled the average price of cows at auction in the uk and a heifer so a heifer is a cow that hasn't actually had any calves yet. See, I never knew that. I think that's really interesting. I didn't know that either until this week. <laughs> um, so a heifer can at auction in the UK can go for like £1,500. So I'm not sure what that is in dollars, but... Mm, $1,700? $1,700, yeah. 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 And a cow, which is a cow that has previously given birth, okay. can easily go for £1,100. Um, ca- uh, calves can go for like five hundred pound upwards. I mean, these are today's prices, but and everything does vary on weight, breed, age, everything like that. Whether the meat, dairy, for mm-hmm. breeding, whatever. But that's a lot of money. Yeah. Um, I don't know what it was in the eighties, but I assume it's still going to be a lot of money at the time. Yeah, for sure, especially if. You know, he's stealing them, so he's got no overhead. He's just, yeah. he's pure profit. Yeah. It, it, it's serious money trading in livestock. Yeah. So, along with his cattle rustling business, McElroy also stole pigs from local farmers. Not only did he steal cows and pigs, he stole fuel, alcohol, antiques, grain and other produce, and pretty much anything else he could get his hands on that would sell for a profit. Classy guy. Oh, yeah. And it does seem that he was the only one rustling livestock in the local area, and everyone knew he was doing it, but still nobody's doing anything. So 
he's like, like when he was a kid bullying other kids and stealing things there's just no pushback from any kind of authority hmm. there's no consequence no punishment yeah this kind of sets the tone <laughs> for the rest of his life clearly uh but he did have some slightly more legitimate sources of income what yeah so he actually leased farmland and so this confused me a bit because he from what i can gather he was living in the family's farm mm-hmm. farmhouse but they were sharecrop either sharecroppers or tenant farmers. tenant farmers yeah so they were already renting from somebody either paying rent or paying in a share of the crops depending which way it was so not really sure what like what proper uh, what land he was leasing um or maybe he just invested the money he got from livestock rustling and fencing all the stolen gear in farmland around the skidmore area maybe who knows Maybe he's a sensible criminal. <laughs> uh, and he also bred and raced greyhound, greyhounds. And I'm sure there was probably a few races fixed down at the dog track. Poor puppies. Don't, yeah. don't race greyhounds. They're just lazy, nice puppies. Now, just as he wasn't one to let the law get in the way of his fun, McElroy wasn't one to let his marriage vows stop him from fucking whomever he wanted and as it turns out uh he wanted young girls he could control use and abuse asshole yep so within two years of marrying his first wife at the age of 20 he was quote dating a 13 year old schoolgirl called donna fuck off who he then got pregnant. Fuck off even further. She's fucking 13. He's 20. Yeah. Uh, and by the time Donna had given birth to their son, McElroy had moved on to another schoolgirl, this time a 15-year-old uh, named Sharon. Right, you know, just fuck off. And when you get there, fuck off some more. <laughs> like, how did it take so long for this man to get murdered? He's a fucking pedophile. And in a small town like that, he fucking knows their children. Yeah, for sure. Which is obviously why he's gone after them, because he can groom them and go and use and abuse them. So McElroy finally got around to divorcing his first wife uh, while he was dating Sharon. But their relationship was a rocky one, which, of course, is such a surprise, considering she is only a teenager. Um, and... During one of their fights, he decides he's going to end the fight by picking up a shotgun and shooting Sharon. Of course. Well, obviously, that's how I end all my arguments. You know. Anyway. Yeah. <laughs> some sources say he shot her in the neck and others say she he shot her in the stomach. Either way, not ideal. Like, I'm seriously going to lose my shit. I've read so much about this case and this man and everything he did. But every time I have to think about it, I get so angry all over again. Like, yeah. <sighs> okay, breathe. Oh, but like important to note, 
She lives. Oh, yeah. Yeah. She survives. She survives a fucking shotgun blast. Yeah. Which is, like, pretty badass. Yeah. But, yeah. So, following the shooting of his 15-year-old girlfriend, who has survived, he forces her to marry him. Obviously. Because if you're married, you can't testify against your spouse. <sighs> so just, just let that sink in. And also, what the fuck are her parents doing? Your 15-year-old daughter has just been shot by your 21-year-old boyfriend, and now he's forcing her to marry him so she can't testify against him for shooting her. What the fuck are they playing at? I mean, what? There's, no, there's nothing wrong with that, right? It's, it's, it's totally normal. <laughs> mm-hmm. So Sharon would go on to have two children with McElroy, but by the time the second child was born in 1961, when Sharon would be in her early 20s and McElroy was 27, he'd, of course, gone and found himself a new girlfriend, 13-year-old Sally. Ugh. It's just gross. That's a 14-year age gap. It's terrifying. Also, That's... like, 13-year-olds are annoying. Like, Seriously, I don't think that's quite the issue here. No, it's not. <laughs> but, like, it just, I think, it just speaks to the the idea that, like, if there are people out there who are actively seeking out relationships with teenagers, it, you know they're, they're fucked up because who in their right mind would want to spend more time with a 13-year-old than they had to? Yeah, I mean, it, it speaks to his mental yeah. age. Yeah, that too. Um, as much as anything, but like I said, he's a fucking pedophile. Oh, for fucking sure. So, soon, 13-year-old Sally would move into the McElroy farmhouse. Of course! So, at this point, there is Tony and Mabel, the McElroy parents. There's Ken McElroy, his first wife, uh, second wife, Sharon, and her two children. We're not really sure what happened to Donna and her son or where they were living. And now his 13-year-old girlfriend, Sally, is also in there. Plus any siblings of his that are still around or working on the farm and their offspring. How big was this fucking farmhouse? Right. Like... Uh, Oh, actually, I heard uh, it was, a, I think, a four-room farmhouse. So it's like 18 people to a room, right? <laughs> oh, my God. That's, like, uh, it's uh, like some kind of seriously fucked up Brady Bunch happening there. It's too many people in a house, first yeah. of all. Mm -hmm. um, and... To add to that, Sally would end up having three children with McElroy, and Sharon would have another two. So we're just trying to overpopulate Missouri at this point. Yes. So 
the population was 400 and odd and <laughs> that family was just like responsible for half of that yeah it's like just all McElroy's like running about the town like <laughs> fucking rabbits McElroy at this point is almost 30 and has eight kids almost all of them two underage girls and I think Sharon's youngest two children would be about the only ones born after the mother has reached the age of consent. Jesus. And that's just the ones we know about because the number of McElroy's offspring varies from 10 to 15. God. So we're not really sure. There's probably more out there. <laughs> but obviously, 13-year-old Sally isn't staying 13 forever. And three years later, she was too old for McElroy. Of course. And he found himself a new girl. 13-year-old Alice. It's terrifying. Like, and the fact that everyone was just like, yeah, uh, here, take take my child and, yeah. and marry her along with your other, you know, child 20 bride. wives. <laughs> like, what? Who in this small town where literally everybody probably knew each other was like, you know what, Ken? I'll give you my daughter. Yeah. You can have her. Yeah. You know, just, just take her. We're not doing anything with her. Right? Like, oh, yeah. You you want to um, breed her, basically? Like, and you're really fucking old and she's in middle school? Great. We love the sound of that. Like, What the actual fuck is going on in this town? I don't understand. Ugh. Uh... Yeah, so he's found Alice. He moved her into the farmhouse with the rest of the gigantic, weird fucking family. Yeah. Uh, and he beats her, rapes her, and eventually gets her pregnant. Because what else is he doing? Yeah. Apart from stealing everyone's livestock. Yeah. Uh, but following the birth of her son, Alice leaves the farm and returns to her mother and stepdad's house in a town called St. Joseph, which is about 50 miles south of Skidmore, roughly halfway between Skidmore and Kansas City. Hmm. But McElroy wasn't going to let his 13-year-old girl get away with leaving him, taking his son, and not doing what he wanted her to do. Yeah, and I think it's, it's crystal clear at this point that these girls and these children, their possessions to him. He calls up Alice's stepfather and told him, he was coming to get his son, and he would kill anyone who got in his way. And Alice's stepfather told McElroy to, quote, pound sand. And I had to Google this, because I'd never heard this phrase before. <laughs> and uh, according to the interwebs, it basically means get to fuck. Yeah, that's a pretty good <laughs> translation there. <laughs> English to English translation. Yeah. Uh, so after this delightful phone conversation McElroy turns up outside Alice's family home with a rifle and uh, shoots Alice's stepfather in the thigh through the living room window and for this he was arrested for felonious assault what's up with this town though that like I'm assuming he doesn't die because he's no. just been charged with assault yeah so he, this I, is he just using a really bad shotgun or what because it's just i don't he's shooting people and they're all living which is good for them yeah but confusing for me so he went on a mission to intimidate alice's family until they dropped the charges against him 
But still, Alice's family refused to drop the charges. Uh, that is until one day when McElroy followed the stepfather to a bar in St. Joseph and threatened him with a knife. That actually still didn't work. So he went out to his truck and returned later, minutes later, with a shotgun. His fave. Um, but he didn't actually shoot anyone. He just shot the floor next to the stepfather's feet. Of course. And still, Alice's stepfather wasn't giving in. God bless this so, man, I yeah. tell you. And he was arrested for the floor shooting. But none of the other patrons in the bar would testify against him. Presumably because he threatened them all too. So the charges were dropped because no witness, no crime. God. Uh, yeah, so this is very much the way McElroy deals with anyone who has the audacity to, you know, think that he should face any kinds of consequences for his actions. Shortly after the charges are dropped against McElroy and St. Joseph, Alice moves back to the McElroy farm in Skidmore with her son. Uh, and at some point around this time, McElroy divorces Sharon and marries Alice. So that's, he divorces his second wife. Do you think he has, you know, like on TV shows where you see someone's trying to solve a crime and they have like... <laughs> They have like pictures and boards and everything, and everything's connected by a piece of string. Yeah, the, Do you the think red he yarn. He needed that just to keep track of who his wives and his kids were. Oh, yeah, 100%. Like, because I, I think we should have drawn a diagram and just stuck it on the wall because I can't keep track. No, I ha like, I'm so confused by this whole fucked up family tree. In amongst stalking Alice's family, shooting at bars, and all his usual other criminal activities. <laughs> And marrying Alice as well. He's also found himself another victim. Of course. 12 year old Trina. Fucking 12. 12 years old. Oh my God. So, over the course of the next two years, McElroy takes Trina on trips to motels out of town where he could rape her. And when Trina was 14, she got pregnant and dropped out of school, and McElroy moved her into the farmhouse. At this point, Alice and her son are still living at the farmhouse. We're not sure where Sharon or Sally or their children are at this point. But finally, uh, someone seems to be taking note of the fact that regardless of whether or not these girls, because yes, they are they still are girls, children. They are children. Uh, whether or not they actually consented to sex with McElroy, the fact that they are in their early teens whilst he is in his 30s makes it statutory rape. It's McElroy. So he had a get out of jail free card. He quickly divorced Alice, who he'd only recently married anyway. Of course. And marries Trina. And I fell down a bit of a Wikipedia hole trying to figure out legal marriage age <laughs> in the USA. So if I understand correctly, which I might not. Mm-hmm. The legal age is 18, but there are loopholes and exceptions, and these vary from state to state. Yep. And with parental consent and judicial approval, the age of the legal age to get married can be as young as 14 in some states. Yeah. There are exceptions that allow for underage marriages, uh, one of which is if the woman is pregnant, or we should say girl is pregnant. 
Um, and that loophole essentially makes it a marry a rapist law. And that is what fucks me. That's that's just what fucks with my mind so much. And it's like it's so it's so backwards because you're basically saying, "Hey, like we know that <laughs> you have like gotten this child pregnant." and you're a rapist that's a crime but why don't you just marry her and we'll all forget about the whole thing yeah and then you're fine yeah you're good to go why not like what the fuck so if we've understood things correctly mcelroy was able to marry trina even though he was 35 and she was just 14 yeah i actually got that wrong it's 37 by the time she's 14 god yeah i typed that out wrong i've just realized that's too old. So yeah, he's thirty-seven. He's thirty-seven. Um, and so he's allowed to marry her because she's pregnant with his child. Uh, and after this, he can't be arrested for rape or statutory rape because the marriage legalizes sex between an adult and a child. And Trina can't testify against him because they're married. And, you know, you can't be forced to testify against your spouse. Uh, Yeah. There's just a lot to really get your head around. And I know we're talking about the 60s at this point. No, sorry, uh, 70s. This shit was legal until a few years ago. Oh, yeah, I believe it. Yeah. And in some states, still, still is. is. Yeah. Katrina gave birth, I believe, in 1971, um, at the age of just 14. And one way or another, McElroy manages to swerve statutory rape charges, child molestation. He just gets away with it again <laughs> uh, by marrying her. But there's actually also questions about the legality of all of his marriages because they seem to overlap. Just 16 days after Trina gave birth, both she and Alice tried to escape McElroy with their young children, and they both moved in with Trina's family. But as was the case with Alice's family when she tried to leave him before, McElroy stalked the family and eventually forced the two girls to return to the farmhouse. So, after he's forced them back to the farm, uh, McElroy beat the absolute living shit out of both of them he broke trina's nose and cheekbones and that is not an injury you hear of often like to break someone's cheekbones and i'm actually like touching my cheeks (laughs) to work out because like i can see it like breaking your jaw breaking your nose but your cheekbone yeah that's a hell of a lot of force obviously 14 year old trina needed medical attention following this absolutely brutal assault at the hands of 37-year-old Ken McElroy. And finally, there's someone in authority who stops and thinks, hmm, something isn't right with all these young girls being married to a guy in his 30s who, you know, just keeps battering the crap out of them. Wow, finally. Yeah. And the doctor who treated Trina uh, referred her case to the CPS, which in the US is Child Protective Services. Not Crown Prosecution Service, <laughs> as it is in the UK. Yes, different things. Yeah. 
And Trina and her child are both placed in foster care in Maryville. Hmm. Um, which is about 15 miles away from Skidmore. And side note, Maryville is actually where the nearest police station is to Skidmore. Oh, so that's why he's gone away with everything, because they're 15 miles away from the, the local cops. Yeah, there's like literally no law enforcement in Skidmore. <laughs> <laughs> so following this attack, Trina made allegations of rape and assault against McElroy, and he was subsequent, subsequently charged with arson, rape, and brandishing a deadly weapon. But, of course... This didn't really do anything to deter McElroy. He would drive to Maryville and park outside the foster family's home and intimidate the family and Trina. Eventually, uh, Trina got sick of being in foster care and reportedly ran away right back to McElroy. Uh, So when Trina moves back to the farm with McElroy, the charges against McElroy are dropped, uh, because Trina's the only witness, and she can't testify against him. Trina seems to be the only one of McElroy's, quote, wives, who sticks around for any length of time. His other victims all manage to escape at some point, but Trina stays with him right up until the end when he's murdered, which, as we said before, you know, isn't uncommon in cases of domestic abuse. So, if you're like us... You're probably wondering how this almost illiterate, unemployable son of poor tenant farmers manages to get away with all the heinous crimes against these women, not to mention a whole host of other crimes he was busy committing through Nottoway County in his spare time. Uh, And the answer to that is he was connected. Yeah, in that way. (laughs) (laughs) McElroy hired Kansas City defense attorney Richard Jean McFadden and often bragged that he was also a mob lawyer. This is McElroy bragging, not Uh, McFadden. And uh, McFadden actually claimed that McElroy was the best client he ever had. Said he was punctual, always said he didn't do it, paid in cash and kept coming back. And if you're a shady defense attorney who works for the mob, that's exactly what you want, isn't it? I just love that. It's, uh, like, you know, he's my best client. He he shows up, says the right things, and he comes back for more. He's always doing more crimes. And, and pays in cash. Don't forget Oh, yeah. It. Pays in cash. Like, yeah. key. Very key. Yeah. McFadden estimated that McElroy was arrested on average at least three times a year and was indicted 21 times, but he never spent a day in prison. Like, I I have to wonder if that's some sort of record. I think it must be. Because, like, what the fuck, man? In 1976, local Skidmore farmer Romaine Henry was shot twice in the stomach by McElroy as he tried to chase him off his land. Uh, that's Romaine Henry trying to chase McElroy off of Henry's land. Uh, yeah. And McElroy's response was to shoot Henry in the stomach. Uh, So McElroy was charged with assault with intent to kill, but denied he was even at the scene. So now, does Romaine Henry live? Yeah, because it's intent to kill. It's intent to kill. It's not murder. 
this guy is shit with a shotgun apparently (laughs) (laughs) what the fuck (laughs) or this town has some sort of radioactive water supply that makes these people impervious to shotgun blasts because Uh it's a thing Everyone just heals from them magically. I mean, it depends what he's shooting them with. If he's using True. shells or like, I'm trying to think of the word. Is it buckshot? Buckshot or yeah, um, birdshot is the other yeah. one. Yeah, I mean, there's lots of different things you can put in a shotgun. True, but just like, and all these people get, and it's like they're not even, uh, you know, getting shot, you know in the foot or in the shoulder Mm. they're getting shot in the stomach the neck the thigh all of those places on the body where there are major major arteries and massive blood loss potential (laughs) like uh... so the case drags on for months because McElroy's superstar alleged mob lawyer was able to delay the trial repeatedly and this gave McElroy enough time to threaten and intimidate witnesses. Now, sidebar, this has just occurred to me. I really hope Romaine Henry was a lettuce farmer. <laughs> <laughs> I'm surprised this didn't occur to you earlier. Me I too. was expecting I, it. I'm ashamed of myself. <laughs> I, I'll, I'll be more on my game from now on. Yeah, you, you do love a good pun. I do. It's the best. By the time the trial finally rolled around, McElroy had two raccoon hunters testify in his defense. What the fuck is it with raccoon hunters? I just... So, (laughs) apparently, in Missouri, this must be a, like, (laughs) well-respected occupation. You know, oh, I just Mm. met this great guy, and guess what? He's not a doctor. He's a raccoon hunter. Like, is it just like, not instead of like being the national pastime, it's just the state pastime? Maybe. Is, I, there, is there like a, a raccoon problem in Missouri? Are they overrun? I'm thinking that there, there must be some sort of issue. If this is such a like venerable position for one to have. Mm. I, 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 I mean, I don't know if it's a good thing. It's just that... That was the way they're identified in like <laughs> all the articles I found about this was two raccoon hunters, you know, were called on by the defense to say he wasn't there when Romain Henry gets shot. I just, <laughs> I just love it. I mean, I, I want to look up like what the fuck is up with raccoon hunting in, in Missouri. <laughs> is that what you're doing right now? Yeah, I, I'm looking it up. <laughs> raccoon hunting... Oh, interesting. Uh, Google tries to fill in Michigan. So apparently it's oh. a thing in Michigan. Missouri. Also Mississippi. Oh, maybe it's just the M's. Maybe. Is it illegal to kill a raccoon in Missouri? Uh... <laughs> oh, interesting. So... The Wildlife Code of Missouri classifies the raccoon as a fur bearer and game mammal that may be taken during prescribed hunting and trapping seasons. The code also specifies that you may shoot or trap damage-causing raccoons out of season without a permit. Right. So, basically, there's there's no, like, 
sounds like. There's no regulations on killing mm. raccoons. Like, so so if they're a raccoon hunter are they, is it a good thing because they're like pest control it, i think it must be <laughs> or is it just that they're like killing things and pretend that oh it was it was looking at me funny therefore it was a nuisance <laughs> well, of course they're looking at you funny they've got those masks on um what the raccoon oh right yeah yeah. So there's a there's a Vox magazine article called A Good Night's Hunt Raccoon Hunting in Missouri. One of Missouri's oldest sports persists under the night sky. So basically, we have no idea why. <laughs> um right. So these two illustrious raccoon hunters testified that McElroy was with them on the day of the shooting and far away from Romaine Henry's property. Under questioning from McFadden, Henry admitted that he had concealed his own petty criminal conviction from more than 30 years ago. So he's, you know, he hadn't revealed a minor conviction from 30 years ago and now, of course, like, he's, he's been discredited, yeah. So, McElroy was acquitted of these offenses against Romain Henry. In 1980, one of McElroy's many offspring uh, mm. it is caught by a store clerk attem- attempting to steal candy from the local grocery store, which is owned by 70-year-old Ernest Bo Bowenkamp and his wife Lois. Uh and McElroy was incensed that anyone would expect his children to pay for the things that they took from the local store. I mean, he's clearly above the law, so his children are as well, right? Of course. So, after this incident, McElroy took to stalking the Bone Camp family and would regularly park his pickup truck outside of the back of the grocery store, of course, with his gun in hand. Uh, and it's worth noting... That Bo Bowenkamp was as much of an institution in Skidmore as McElroy was, except sort of on the opposite end of the spectrum yeah. in so much as everyone loved Bo instead of fucking hated his guts. Like, they <laughs> hated McElroy. Yeah. So, this is, remember, this is over like a few cents worth of candy. And after a few weeks, he decides he's going to confront Bo Bowenkamp. So, the loading dock behind the grocery store, McElroy confronts him. He shoots 70-year-old Bo point-blank in the neck. Here we go again. And then claims self-defense. Obviously. Because Bo had a knife. (laughs) A 270-pound, six-foot-something man with a gun... He was beaten and abused virtually everyone who has ever crossed his path. Claimed self-defense against a 70-year-old man with a knife. But Bobo and Camp survived. Despite the fact that he was 70 and shot in the neck. Point blank. This town, man. <laughs> like, what the fuck? McElroy started his usual routine 
of intimidating witnesses and threatening the victim and his family. And McFadden did all he could do to delay the trial, including getting the trial moved to a neighboring county. But this time, McElroy's intimidation tactics don't work, and the bone camps go all the way to court and testify against him. So while McFadden is busy getting the trial delayed, the district attorney quits. And many people suspect that McElroy either threatened him or paid him off, or possibly both. Um, and the district attorney is replaced by David Baird, who's just three years out of law school. But David Baird, three years out of law school, manages to do the impossible. Something no predecessor of his could ever do. He gets McElroy convicted for oh, something. Oh my god. Not for attempted murder, for shooting someone in the neck, but for something. Yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, he's actually convicted of second degree assault, which has a maximum sentence of two years. And the judge freed him on a $40,000 bail bond pending the appeal. Uh, yeah, I, I heard something about this. It was like, in Missouri, if you're out on appeal, or if you've been convicted, but you're appealing the conviction, you can be let out on bail. Which I is don't understand this because baffling. you've been convicted. You've been convicted. Like, the, the onus is now on you to prove th- through your appeal that you yeah, didn't commit the crime. You're, you're innocent. N- not, so. <laughs> it, it's not like, hey, this is just another trial. You're still assumed innocent. No, like literally the opposite. And so just... I, I, I don't get that at all. Following his conviction, McElroy says, the jury convicted me and they gave me two years. But I'll tell you what, I'll never go to jail. I'll appeal and get off. I've been fighting the law since I was 13 and I'm damn near 50. I've been arrested for over 53 felonies and this is the first one I ever lost. 53 felonies. I've said it before, but you know, just fuck this guy. Yeah. Oh my God. So once again, McElroy is out on the streets of Skidmore, uh, charged with secondary degree assault, not attempted murder, which really is what shooting someone point blank in the neck should be called. So, of course, straight away, McElroy goes to the local bar, the D&G Tavern, and starts making threats about finishing the job uh, on Bo Bone Camp. Not only that, but he's in there with a rifle with a bayonet attached to it, which is like a special kind of crazy. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, I, I was like, why... Why would you have a gun and a big knife attached to it? I mean, clearly he's no good at shooting and killing people. <laughs> and he needs the extra. <laughs> he needs the backup. So, carrying this rifle bayonet contraption was a breach of McElroy's bail conditions. Shocking. Yeah, who knew? Um, and he's arrested again. But once again, he's released with the only consequence being his appeal court date gets delayed once again. Uh, And this is the final straw for the residents of Skidmore, Missouri. Time and time again, the justice system has failed them, 
and now even shooting someone in the neck and violating bail wasn't enough to put this guy behind bars. So, on July 10th, 1991, a meeting was held in the town's Legion Hall to discuss what could be done to stop Ken McElroy from harming anyone else. It was attended by as many as 60 Skidmoreans, including the mayor and the sheriff. Remember, there's only about 400 people living in Skidmore in the 1980s. So that's not too far away from an average of one person per household attending this meeting. Yeah, I mean, that that just shows you how completely fucked the situation is at this point. Yeah. That they're having a town meeting and an average of one person from each household. Yeah. And like also the other... Like, at least 200 of those people live in the McElroy farmhouse. Well, so, yeah, that is true. You know. <laughs> it's, I, I'd forgotten about that bit. It's a big percentage <laughs> when you think about it like that. Yes. Yeah. So, so minus the McElroys themselves. <laughs> that's almost everyone in this yeah. kid. It's just everyone in town. <laughs> the sheriff, Dan Estes, suggest, suggested that they form a neighborhood watch. Which, you know, sounds fair. Local law enforcement can't do anything. The courts can't do anything. They briefly had a U.S. Marshal who couldn't do anything. Oh, my God. Um, You know, ah, a neighborhood watch. That'll sort him out. Why don't we just write him a very stern, angry letter? Dear sir, we do not approve of your chicanery. (laughs) Please stop it at once. I, I do love that voice. <laughs> Good. I'll, I'll bring it back. Don't worry. Yeah, you should do the next episode just all in that voice. Uh, no. <laughs> so, other than the sort of lackluster suggestion of a neighborhood watch, uh, we'll never really know what was discussed inside the Legion Hall that day. We only know what happened next. As the attendees left the hall, they saw McElroy's truck parked across the road outside the D&G tavern, and they descended on the bar. Inside the tavern, the group of townspeople just stood around watching McElroy and Trina, who by this point is 24 years old. Um, So if you think about that, half of her life has been spent under McElroy's thumb. So McElroy and Trina, they're in the tavern, They finish up their drinks and head outside to their pickup truck. And the group of 60 locals follow them out into the street. Yeah, and it's worth noting that this is about 10.30 in the morning that they're in the tavern. Of course. You know, drinking away and then just take... I think it was like got a six-pack for the road as well. Yeah, he he got a six-pack. So, yeah. Brilliant. That just shows you what kind of guy this is. (laughs) So... As McElroy sat in his truck, lighting a cigarette, Trina looked over her shoulder and saw someone pull a rifle and take aim at McElroy. Shots were fired. Trina dived from the truck and was helped to safety by a man named Jack Clement. Ken McElroy was struck in the head multiple times. And ballistics later showed that the bullets had come from two different guns. Which means... As you will have worked out, there were two different shooters. <laughs> the one who was the man Trina saw behind the truck and the second shot from the front of the truck. Not one single person called for an ambulance. 
Instead, they all watched Ken McElroy bleed out, slumped in the p- driver's seat of his pickup truck at the age of 47. Um, yeah, it was something like they just sort of all stood there and watched as he died. And then they called an ambulance like two hours later. So Trina was completely unharmed uh, and she just sort of screamed hysterically about her murdered husband. Uh, So it clearly wasn't a frenzied attack. Uh, There were two shooters who knew what they were doing and knew who they were there to shoot and took their aim and hit their target. Yeah. And it's at this point that the residents of Skidmore all collectively went blind and developed amnesia. Nobody saw a thing. Yeah. Uh, obviously. Despite Makoroi being shot in the middle of town in broad daylight, nobody saw the shooters. Officially, there was 46 witnesses, including Trina. Jesus. Who were interviewed, and only one name was ever mentioned, and that was Del Clement. So Trina identified Del Clement, who was a part owner of the D&G Tavern. I wonder if he, he was like the D. Oh, yeah, maybe. Del and, and Gerard. <laughs> tavern. It doesn't exist anymore. Oh, It's quite sad. That's a shame. So Trina identified Del Clement as the shooter who she saw standing behind the truck before the shooting started. Nobody else ever corroborated Trina's claims about Del Clement. Um, no, there was never any suggestion of who this second shooter could be. And no one has ever been prosecuted for McElroy's murder. And this is why, you know, what was discussed in the town meeting sort of remains suspect. While the local residents claim that there had never been any kind of plan or conspiracy to murder McElroy... Uh, discussed in the Legion Hall that morning, others aren't so convinced. Mm. Um, Sheriff Dan Estes claims to have left the meeting early and that he doesn't know what else was discussed, which, you know, seems a little suspicious, but... Yeah, I mean, I, I left early, so it's nothing to do with me. Whatever whatever they said afterwards, it, I, I was gone. They discussed murdering him. I had nothing to do with it. Yeah, uh, I wasn't there. I was getting a cappuccino. Sorry. In rural Missouri in 1981. I was getting my morning beer. (laughs) More like. (laughs) So what do you think? Do you think it was planned? I mean, yes. (laughs) 100%. I would fucking murder this guy. Like, Yeah, I'd have murdered him years uh, ago. Years ago. Yeah. I think it probably was all planned in the legion hall but then there's part of me that's just like maybe it was just spontaneous and the town was just like yeah we know i don't know like if it wasn't planned at the very least there was clearly a a, this a solid understanding of like yeah i think like i think that's my thing even if it wasn't specifically like okay you and you are going to shoot him uh, you're going to make sure she gets out of the car alive. Yeah. You're, you're all going to die for cover and no one's going to say anything. Yeah. I don't think it was necessarily planned in that detail, but I think there was definitely some suggestion of finishing him off. Yeah, exactly. It's sort of like, 
this guy has got to be stopped one way or the other. And in the process of doing that, like, nobody's going to snitch, basically. McElroy is buried at the Memorial Park Cemetery in St. Joseph, Missouri. And despite a federal investigation, nobody has was ever charged. And the only name ever to be mentioned in connection with his murder was Del Clement. Uh, and right up until his death in January of 2009, Del always maintained his innocence. Uh, on the 9th of July, uh, 1984, which is one day short of the third anniversary of McElroy's death, Trina filed a $6 million lawsuit against the town of Skidmore, Nottoway County, Sheriff Dan Estes, Mayor of Skidmore, Steve Peters, and Del Clement. Jesus, cover all the bases. Oh, yes. The case was eventually settled out of court for a sum of $17,600. That is a big climb down from $6 million. That's a <laughs> big difference. <laughs> uh, when nobody ever admitted guilt. And it was just settled for the reason of avoiding legal costs on all sides if the case proceeded. Trina eventually remarried and moved to Lebanon, Missouri, where she died of cancer on her 55th birthday in January 2012. Bobo and Camp's daughter, Cheryl Houston, said on the silence that followed, Once the shroud of silence fell, there was going to be no talking. They could have pushed and dug, pushed and dug, and gotten nothing. We were so bitter and so angry at the law letting us down that it came to someone taking matters in their own hand. And no one has any idea what a nightmare we lived through. So, obviously, we can't condone vigilante justice. Because it is a very slippery slope and we don't have, you know, we don't have the, the right to play judge, jury and executioner. But is this case the exception to the rule? Was it was it justified? Yeah, I mean that's a big that's a big question because like I don't know personally. Yes, like yeah, everything else that they tried couldn't get this guy under control. Yeah, and obviously. You know, the ideal situation is never going to be let's form an angry mob and go after somebody with pitchforks and or shotguns. But like, yeah. uh, I mean, that is how thing you know, like lynchings started. Yeah. You know, oh, we hate these black people. You know, let's go kill them because we don't want them in our town. Yeah. You know, go um, back even further. There's uh, Salem witch trials. Yeah. The course. whole pitchfork pitchfork and tortures mentality thing is so dangerous it is but but it's it, th- those instances also if you think about them are based on this sort of like perceived otherness or you know hmm. a, a inherent hatred yeah racism but- you know f- fear of witchcraft whatever the fuck you know, religious intolerance, whatever yeah. it might be. I mean, they were just the first things I could think of with like angry mobs. <laughs> no, but like, I mean, or even uh, if we look to literature, uh, Frankenstein. Yeah. Like you've got, you know, 
is mm-hmm. just this nice monster trying to live his life and it's not his fault he was created yeah and the townspeople are like no it mustn't have this abomination but like in this instance this guy was literally a menace obviously it should never be your first port of call no <laughs> but like i i think they're there are times and places for sort of citizens to react to heinous situations. Yeah. Um, And, you know, we've seen that throughout history in in different situations. And sometimes it's just what has to happen when there's no other opportunity for anything else. Yeah. And I mean, like the the quote from Bobo and Campstar, they were just let down over and over and over and over for 30 years and they were fed up and they were bitter and it was like living a nightmare yeah one of the things that really upsets me about this case is that it took 30 years for them to reach breaking point and nobody really cared when he was abusing schoolgirls. i mean trina was fucking 12 12 years old when he first began grooming her yeah and it took up until Bobo and Camp was shot for the town to be like, nah, fuck this, we've had enough. Why wasn't him being a fucking paedophile rapist enough for them? And why was no one protecting these young girls? Yeah. And I'm not dismissing what happened to Bobo and Camp. Obviously, that is horrific to be shot in the neck simply for expecting a child to pay for sweets in your shop. Yeah. And I'm not saying, you know, what happened to the, like, what happened to those girls and what happened to him. They're completely different crimes. They're completely different types of trauma. They're not comparable. It's in this is worse than this and that, you know, that kind of thing. Um, But I'm just sad. I'm sad that that was the breaking point and that nobody, nobody tried to protect these young girls. So with all of that, um, we'll leave you with this quote from one of the attendees of the meeting on July 10th, 1981. We simply felt that the system had failed us. We all knew what McElroy was like, and there he was again and again. It seemed like nobody could stop him. And that is the case of Ken McElroy and the town that got away with murder. So let us know your thoughts. What do you think? Was the shooting justified? Uh, find us on Instagram and Facebook, Square Mile of Murder, and tell us what you think. Yeah. We would love to know. Yeah, honestly. It is a big moral question. Yeah, it's a tricky one. Yeah. Um, thanks for listening. Bye. Bye.